0: I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and you're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. A big and growing piece of a campaign's budget is spent on digital advertising. We've talked before on the podcast about the efficacy of using digital ads to fundraise, but today we're going to get an even better look into the other side of that digital ad spend. All the dollars that get put behind the ads meant to persuade voters and to get out the vote. To help us Get that better look, I'm speaking with Megan Clawson, who recently served as a senior paid media advisor to the Biden for President campaign. So she knows a thing or two about all this. But it's not just presidential politics. She knows Megan is the vice president of digital at GMMB, a PR and communications firm in D.C. that works with candidates up and down the ballot. So I am excited to get her take on digital lessons from 2020, as well as the truly obscene sums of money that were spent to target voters with digital ads this cycle. It's become a huge piece of the money in our politics today, and she's going to help us make more sense of it. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Calltime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy to use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring. So that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm joined now by Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. Why don't we start with talking about you? What got you into politics originally? And specifically, what brought you to the digital advertising space?
1: I think I have kind of a unique background. I actually started working in digital advertising on the brand side versus starting in the political side. So I, I worked for about three and a half years in New York at big agencies, starting out at Starcom on the Samsung account, which is a very intense account. And, you know, long hours, lots of work. And I kind of just felt like If I'm gonna put this much work in, I I kinda wanna do something a little bit more meaningful with my time. So I ended up applying online to work at the on the Hillary Clinton campaign in Brooklyn, which I think, you know, a lot of times when you apply for a job online, you kind of feel like there's no chance you're gonna get it or even get interviewed. But it kind of was a situation where the stars aligned and they were looking for somebody with an outside perspective. And I kinda had that outside perspective and ended up landing there. And I think, you know, going into that, I don't think I was thinking I'm going to change my entire career. I work in politics now, but after seeing Donald Trump win, I felt like I couldn't really step out and ended up, you know, interviewing a bunch of places but ultimately got connected with JB Pritzker and his gubernatorial campaign in Illinois, which was an amazing opportunity because JB 100% believes in digital advertising and wanted to build the biggest internal digital operation that had ever been built and, you know, with somebody who Felt it was deeply important to the campaign. So after meeting with him, I knew I couldn't say no to that job and moved to Chicago and and ran his operation, which we ended up winning a bunch of awards, winning best advertising campaign of the year at the Reed Awards. So that was awesome to be able to to do that. And then landed at GMMB after the 2018 cycle and did you know a variety of work last cycle, but probably the most notable thing is ran the digital advertising for the Biden campaign.
0: That's awesome. Well, let's talk about the Biden campaign. You know, we've talked with other folks on this podcast in the past about the different kind of goals and different kinds of campaigns uh, that you can run using digital advertising. So just kind of describe for us, what were the kinds of programs and campaigns that you were running? Was it mostly about persuasion? Were you in swing states? Were you trying to raise money in blue states or get out the vote or, or all of the above? Just a little flavor of kind of the 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 different uh, campaigns you ran.
1: Yeah, so I was I was primarily focused on persuasion, which was also probably the biggest, you know, objective from a digital advertising perspective on the Biden campaign, especially since, you know, we've seen all the stories, but a lot of our traditional GOTV targets needed a little bit of persuasion. You know, young people weren't considering Biden their top pick, you know, so we had to make sure they were learning a little bit more information about him. And, you know, we did some GOTV work as well, but that was kind of split between us and another agency and persuasion. You know, we ran an over $200 million persuasion program in, in battleground states across 17 different states. It was just an enormous campaign that had never really been executed before, at least on the Democratic side. So that was amazing. And I think, you know... The thing about persuasion that's always tricky is when you think about fundraising or email acquisition, you have some kind of metric that's very tangible to measure your success because you're raising money, you're getting emails. With persuasion, it's just very hard to determine when somebody kind of enters in that persuasion stage and is persuaded ultimately to vote for your candidate. So it's definitely more about the setup and implementation and getting the targeting and messaging right instead of, you know, actually tracking in real time and I think, you know, we've seen several studies in the past as well as even after the cycle come out that show that digital engagement does not correlate with persuasion. So we just have to be careful about, you know, how we're using metrics online to determine our decision-making.
0: That's really interesting. And and, and this was obviously a record-setting campaign in any number of ways, both in the context uh, that in which it was running and then also in the campaign that it ran. And I'm curious, you just referenced a, a study about the kind of how you do or maybe do not measure the effectiveness of a digital persuasion campaign. Any other major takeaways, given the the record-setting nature of all that you did, any lessons that you take away that you think, wow, we did that really well, or if I could do it all again, I'd do it differently?
1: I think well, one of the things we did really well was not really leaving any vote on the table. So, you know, we we were live in a number of states, you know, thinking about lots of different paths to victory. I remember on you know, the week of uh, when we were waiting for the election results, which was everyone's, you know, worst week when we, won, when we won Nebraska too, I was like, yes, we ran a digital program in Nebraska too. Like, I'm so glad we did that. <laughs> and, you know, at the time when you're working 18 hour days and you barely have any time to eat or go to the bathroom or anything, just like fundamental, you're like when somebody comes to you and says, we need to go live in Nebraska, it's not like the best thing to happen. But then, you know, you figure out, okay, all the all these things we did helped us land this result. And, you know, beyond the geographic part of it, we also had, I would say, like seven to 10 different targeting tracks in every state, like in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, we had different tracks for veterans, for seniors, for rural voters, and just really trying to serve messaging that resonated with with different groups of people, which I think we did really well and really took the time to think about how different pockets of voters would, you know, think about their decision.
0: It's uh, it's really interesting, and we'll definitely talk about this more in a bit, the notion that you have to feel really confident about the research, you have to feel really confident about the universe of people that you've decided to target, because you don't necessarily have any other real-time way of evaluating sort of the effectiveness there. I wonder the your thoughts, this was a cycle that there was a high level of attention paid to the notion of misinformation, it was obviously very, very prevalent in 2016, and I think there was some attempt at least to really learn those lessons in the 2020 cycle. How did you all think about Crafting your message in a way that broke through the noise that combat misinformation because persuasion, right, is obviously, you know, as you you gave an example of young voters kind of getting to know uh, Joe Biden a little bit better and coming to appreciate his candidacy mo- maybe more than they did before you all started reaching out to them. But then there's also the sort of anti persuasion, right? There's having to somehow combat um, what is just a torrent of misinformation from all sorts of sources. Any thoughts about kind of how it is that you did that you thought about combating that misinformation things again that you felt were especially effective and maybe things that if again you had another shot at it you kind of would do it another way?
1: With misinformation it's super tricky because a lot of the studies that have been done we actually did a study on the Pritzker campaign in 2018 to try to figure out how to deal with fake news because there's a bunch of there's a whole network in Illinois similarly to nationally that goes after people and we really found that the best way to combat it was would just be to put out positive information about the candidate like you know repeating it's not good because you're kind of getting it back into someone's mind and there's there's no real way to like it's also very hard when you think about like combating fake information online because when you think about somebody's attention span on some of these platforms that fake information tends to flow on like Facebook and Instagram they're really only looking at something for a few seconds so like to be able to set up and explain like Trump said Biden thinks this, but that is not true. He actually thinks this, like the actual time that it takes to tell somebody that is just so hard. Our typical approach is just like understanding, you know, who we think is being served, fake information, making sure that we're putting positive information in front of them about the candidate. I think there's certain circumstances where there's an easy hit that you can respond to directly, like, you know, leading into the final week, there was the whole Facebook blackout thing where you had to have every single ad approved before. So we we had no idea what Trump was gonna be putting out there in week one. And we wanted to be able to combat that if we needed to. So we made literally hundreds of ads for any potential thing he could <laughs> he could come at us with. Like, you know, we had something for for taxes if he's if he's going out there in a big way in our battleground state saying, you know, Joe Biden's gonna raise your taxes. We had some a graphic that said Joe Biden is only going to raise taxes on people who make over $400,000 a year, you know, anything that we could really address directly in that way, we kind of had a response for and we were able to use some of those responses in week one, we actually tracked every single day, we would pull a report really early in the morning, it would hit my inbox by around 8am. And we would take a look and, and see what messages Trump was going big with in each battleground state. So we might be responding differently in like Pennsylvania and then Wisconsin and then Florida, depending on what Trump was actually putting paid ads behind and really made that decision on a day to day basis as to like what ads to launch on Facebook. So that was one way we, we really hit it directly. But I think the biggest and most important thing to remember is you don't want to be getting misinformation in front of people who haven't already been exposed to it. You don't necessarily want to be repeating it because the entire thing, when you think about ads, the entire concept of advertising is repetition. And so by repeating somebody's lie, you really are risking that you're making the situation worse. So I think my overall POV is the best thing you can possibly do is to put out positive information, remind people these attacks are just a distraction. Here's what this candidate really cares about.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And you you mentioned specifically Facebook in that answer and the the blackout period. And for those that don't know what that blackout period is, maybe you can both explain for them kind of what what that new restriction on advertising politically on their platform this cycle was all about. And maybe beyond that, you know, this is the Money in Politics podcast, so we talk a lot about how campaigns raise and also spend their money. And increasingly, it seems that Facebook is the sort of beneficiary of a lot of campaign spending. Certainly, the higher up the ticket you get, certainly a presidential campaign uh, like the Biden. So, both maybe you can share a little bit more about what that blackout period is and any other sort of rules you had to contend with. And how you think that that changes how campaigns should think about their spending, how they should think about their budgets as it pertains to Facebook uh, going forward?
1: So I think, you know, Facebook was was definitely under pressure because I think, you know, a lot of people recognize the fake information that, that can be spread on Facebook. And also, you know, looking back at 2016, I think that there was a feeling that Facebook had allowed, you know, fake information to flow from maybe from Russians and from the Trump campaign that wasn't necessarily, shouldn't have been allowed. They now have a new ad checking process in place where they're a little bit stricter on the actual political ads that get approved to run. You have to go through a whole process to actually get yourself as an individual approved to run a political ad. And then they took it one step further at the end of this cycle and said, they won't allow any new creative to be approved in the final week. So anything that you're going to run leading into the election for the last seven days had to previously at least have run a couple of impressions. So every single ad that we wanted to run in the final week, we had to set up, let it run, let it run enough impressions that we felt comfortable, and then basically pause it and then choose what to run moving forward on a day-to-day basis based upon, you know, strategic goals. I think Facebook it's like it's a tricky challenge because, you know, I think a lot of Democrats feel like Facebook has given an advantage to the right wing because their algorithm is promoting things that are more divisive. And, you know, that ends up being the kind of like hateful content that some of these fringe Republican pages are putting out. But on the other hand, obviously, Facebook owns Instagram. So Facebook and Instagram combined are like the biggest you know, chunk of time spent by voters online. And on one hand, do we want to be funneling all this money to Facebook? Probably not. But on the other hand, what we when we are thinking about paid media and, and our goals and objectives, we're thinking about where are our target spending time online and, you know, how can we target them most effectively, meaning like who actually has the best data on their platform or their site to be able to reach the people we need to reach. And Facebook is definitely you know, number one for both of those things. We kind of have to play by the rules that we're given at this point and be able to use the tool to the best of our ability to win the elections. And especially like when you're thinking about older people, I think even more so than anyone else, like they're not necessarily, you know, cutting the cord and streaming every single video online, but they are going on Facebook and Instagram every day. So it's it's definitely somewhere that is important to campaigns. And I think We probably have talked a lot poorly about Facebook over the last six months or so as Democrats, but Facebook also does allow candidates who don't have a lot of resources to be able to get their foot in the door because, you know, they allow you to target in a way that's more niche to really narrow down to who your targets are, which allows, you know, candidates who don't Necessarily have a lot of resources to start out with to be able to get their name out there. So there's definitely positives. And Facebook is a huge fundraising tool. It allows us to be able to acquire new grassroots donors and supporters, people who are going to volunteer and do stuff for the campaign. So there's tons of positives to being able to use Facebook. I think that from my perspective, and I think others in the Democratic Party, what we really want is more regulation on the organic fake information that is being controlled and promoted. And there's been a lot of articles written since the election about how Facebook knows that it can control that information, but it recognizes that, you know, limiting the spread of some of these more, I would say, hateful and divisive posts would definitely bring down their revenue because it would decrease engagement, which is how they make money. So, At the end of the day, Facebook is a business, and until we regulate them, they're not going to regulate themselves. Like We didn't ask the banks to regulate themselves. We shouldn't be asking Facebook to regulate themselves.
0: It's really interesting, and it's an interesting distinction between organic versus paid. And to your point, they certainly have increased the the extent to which they regulate their paid advertising this cycle. And it's also another point that you raise in there that I just want to highlight because it's a distinction I think listeners will be especially interested in, which is that between using the tool Facebook in this case but other advertising tools but I think I think you're right Facebook has a lot of built-in advantages at least for now to be really smart about targeting whether you know targeting a group of voters that you're trying to move or in some cases, in addition to using it as a fundraising tool, probably people who know me will not be surprised to hear that I take us a more dim view of its utility as a fundraising tool. Sort of the further down the ballot you get, you know, just because it becomes a pretty expensive way to get usually relatively small dollars, and you just end up putting a lot of time and, and money behind relatively low conversion rates, and, and it doesn't always pay for itself. And if it does, it only barely does. And you know, I, I think there are probably other ways that smaller campaigns or down ballot campaigns can get get sort of higher margins on their fundraising. This is obviously totally different if you're a presidential campaign and and the level of investment up front can be big and also the level of attention it gets and the level of sort of conversion I'm sure is very different. But to your point, if you are down ballot, even though maybe that fundraising element is a little more hit and miss, maybe a little riskier, the targeting for voters, the targeting for persuasion really good point, right, is that this is a way to get really to really slice and dice your universe to understand exactly who you're talking to at a cost that is definitely sort of more cost effective than if you found a way to find those people some other way and send them mail or or some other kind of uh, a non-digital way. So I think that's also a really interesting distinction and, and something that uh, is probably worth thinking about kind of depending on where your placement on the ballot is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, we did several down ballot races in the Illinois primary and we ran a lot of Facebook ads and had a lot of success. So you have to figure out a way to be able to hire the right people to do it. And, you know, obviously down ballot candidates don't always have the same amount of revenue that that other candidates have to be able to hire a firm who's experienced at doing Facebook ads. But I think as more and more people who are millennials and young people are running for office, you've got scrappy individuals who can kind of figure it out, just hire an intern and have them figure out how to run Facebook ads. It's not it's not rocket science. So it's definitely a tool that's helpful.
0: Yeah, that's another good point, right? Is that it's not the same as like, if someone wanted to go out and and, and do a direct mail appeal, you know, Is there really a world in which someone can reasonably kind of get that done themselves or with a small team or, you know, a small volunteer crew or something like that? Probably not. But to your point, like, can you set up some Facebook ads and and start trying to put your message in front of your neighbors? Yeah, probably within a couple of hours. (laughs) You know, I'm really curious about your thoughts working as you have up and down the ballot, but was specifically sort of thinking about the top of the ticket, just the astronomical sums that were raised and then, you know, consequently poured into digital advertising for a variety of purposes, fundraising, persuasion, GOTV, whatever the case may be. First and foremost, I'm just curious about how you think about, like, even as you're advising campaigns, the right way to evaluate the size of that spend generally, you know, relative to their own budget, relative to their other priorities. And then even like sort of a step further on that, because we did see such huge sums and and certainly, you know, the Biden campaign being one example, how did you all think about saturation? Repetition, you mentioned is sort of the name of the game in advertising. I'm sure there's also some thought around over repetition. But I don't know if politics gets to that point, or, or, or you know, if campaigns aren't even long enough to get to that point. Just curious about your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely interesting, because I think that like, a lot of campaign managers grasp like what a TRP means for TV, like they kind of get like, oh, if you're going to run an ad, you at least have to put this many TRPs behind there. It's not even worth it. It's not going to do anything. But I don't think that there's like that kind of knowledge base for digital. So sometimes I think people think, oh, here, just take this extra 10K we have left over from TV and run a digital program targeting, you know, everyone in this enormous district. Where, like, my approach is always, you know, when you're thinking about digital spend, it should be very similar to the way we're thinking about TV, where you're kind of starting from a point where you identify who are the targets we need to reach, and then beyond, like, who are the targets, you know, which you would get from polling and analytics, like, how many people do you need to reach in order to get to that group of targets online, because it's not... Every Line of the platform doesn't have the ability to target one to one. And even those who do, which is basically Facebook at this point, you're only really reaching fifty percent of your intended targets if you only do list match targeting. So understanding what other Tools can you use like demographic targeting, you know, zip code targeting, for example, is one way to get pretty narrow. So, what does that total audience come to? And then, how many times, you know, what is your kind of like baseline advertising program? How many times a week do you think you need to reach those individuals in order to persuade them? I usually think about it, you know, about five times a week is my baseline, meaning like across every digital platform, if you're running on. Facebook and YouTube and Hulu and Pandora, like it would be five touches, ideally across all of those. Although, of course, there's not a way to completely control for one to one individual exact frequency. But when you it kind of gives you a starting point and ensures that you have enough money to reach people enough times that, you know, the program does something. And then, you know, when you're thinking about the, the threshold that, you know, maybe you get to where you've reached somebody too many times. For me, it's like, If if you're thinking about all the different platforms and all the different times you could reach someone online in like a week long program, you know, I think I don't think it's unreasonable to say like 20 times a week or depending on what your creative is, too. Because if you think about like a force view 30 second ad, that's a very different experience than like static image on Facebook or on like a website. So you also have to take into account like if you're if you're running static ads across, you know, websites where someone's reading information that you probably up your frequency at that point, because that's like a less persuasive experience. But I think it's it's definitely hard to determine if you're getting to the point of oversaturation because I think people generally are inclined to you know at, the the whole definition of advertising is like you're putting content for people that they didn't want to see so it's not it's it's annoying it's annoying to begin with in theory so if if it's not someone that loves your candidate already or is obsessed with politics which most of the time your persuasion targets are not. So people do tend to complain, you know, when you get to the point where you have a big ads program, you're going to see people tweeting like, if I see one more ad from this person. But I think if you're seeing a few of those complaints here and there, you're probably okay. I mean, if there's some kind of like massive amount of social media complaints, maybe you you got to scale back. But, but for me, it's like every single week or biweekly, however often you're pulling reporting, really taking a look at, what your frequency is overall to the extent that you can get to that. It's hard with people having different devices and cookies to really narrow into, you know, exact frequency, but you can definitely make some leaps and make some generalizations. And then across each partner platform you're working with, what is your kind of frequency across each of those and making sure that, you know, if all of a sudden you're seeing some really high frequency on one site, pulling money from that site and moving it elsewhere. We actually did on the Biden campaign, Every single morning, we pulled a pacing report to see how we were doing across every partner and took a look at those kind of metrics like reach and frequency. And based upon what we were seeing, we literally made optimizations on a daily basis to try to make sure we weren't oversaturating on a particular site or a particular audience. So there's things that you can definitely look at and make adjustments to try to avoid that oversaturation.
0: And then the other side of the coin is, right, if you're someone who was more down ballot this cycle... And you were in a state that had one of these massively expensive Senate races, and maybe you were also a, one of the many states that your team was targeting for the Biden campaign. It must have just been really difficult for those campaigns to buy the space that they wanted and then to kind of break through, you know, certainly without nearly the repetitions. Any thoughts about whether or not you think that that's true? And, and also, you know, if it is true, any thoughts you have about a, how a campaign might go about kind of breaking through a, a maybe a noisy environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely it's definitely true that you know your costs are going to go up and your inventory availability is going to go down when there's a competitive race that has a lot of money to spend and you have to figure out ways to kind of work around that. I'm sure Facebook CPMS were higher, you know, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin than they were in some random state. But I think I think the key to breaking through really for for down ballot is to think about you know depending on who your targets are. Are there unique ways for me to to reach people that, you know, maybe not necessarily every candidate at my level is, is using? In some cases, that honestly could be social media because some down-ballot candidates really aren't using digital advertising yet to the extent that, you know, races that are statewide or above are using it. And even if they're seeing a lot of other political advertising, I think the thing with down-ballot races is that, like, a lot of it is just name recognition it comes down to because it's not necessarily some race that everyone's talking about and people have strong opinions because, you know, their friend loves this person, their dad hates this person. It's like literally probably somebody that, you know, you, you see some signs out in people's yards, you see some, maybe see some ads, but you're not necessarily getting the same saturation for that race. And I think when people go into that voting booth on election day, you know, if they see a name they recognize, unfortunately, probably, <laughs> you know, they're just going to vote for that person that, that they recognize. When you're thinking about how to break through from a messaging standpoint, I think you can really think, you know, what are ways where I can make an ad that doesn't necessarily feel like a political ad? For instance, we ran this down ballot race for State Ledge in Illinois for this woman, Margaret Croak, and she was actually a new mom. She had her her child in January and then immediately started campaigning, which I thought was just like extremely impressive. I was like, I can't believe you're balancing a newborn baby and, and all of this, you know, by yourself, she was just like such a badass. And so we really used that in our ads and, you know, her newborn and her ads and had her talking about being a mom and really, it felt really personal. And I think Sometimes when you want to break through in politics, having a human personal side of a candidate that you can show is really helpful because I think when people feel like they like someone and they feel like it's someone they could connect with, that definitely, you know, increases their likelihood to vote for them because they feel like this is a person I can trust.
0: I also would imagine that in most cases... The ability that down ballot sometimes has that just gets a little bit harder and harder the further up the ballot you move is to marry the digital strategy with some just good old fashioned field, not that. Campaigns at the top of the ballot don't have field operations, but obviously someone running for school board probably has more access to all of their neighbors in in a robust way than maybe someone running for Congress or running for the United States Senate. But obviously, that wasn't quite true this cycle, right? So this cycle, because of the pandemic, not all, but it seemed like most of the traditional field organizing that happened had to move online. And so I'm curious about your perspective as someone who was working in the digital ad space, whether for the Biden campaign or any others that you worked with during all of this transition and all of this crisis, was it as straightforward as as all of a sudden you were given sort of you know, the things they needed you to do was a lot more all of a sudden. And also, here's the field budget, you get to use the field budget to do it? Or sort of how did that look trying to transition from being a a partner to non-digital things to sort of having to fill the space of the whole campaign?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely, you know, a crazy year and a crazy challenge for a lot of reasons. I think from like a field perspective, of course, you know, we had digital organizing teams, especially on larger races, who could use new methods like texting and getting people, you know, through peer-to-peer contact, all of that. But you know, we definitely did see, I would say, an increase in our advertising budgets because we recognize that advertising is a way to get in front of people when you can't go knock their door. And there's only there's only so much texting you can do. So I think digital in particular, you know, being able to try new platforms and get in front of people in ways that maybe they hadn't necessarily seen from a political perspective before, maybe not from races that weren't necessarily like the top of the ticket. That was definitely something we thought about when when we were kind of taking over these field operation budgets, because, you know, knocking doors is just such a higher touch than, than a digital ad on Facebook. So how can we think about different ways to reach people online? And again, going back to like the ad experience thing, you know, thinking about ways we can make sure that people are, we're really seeing and hearing our ads online, not necessarily just always seeing them in a news feed and seeing them in a high impact way. Like we did a lot of big takeovers that were accompanied by, you know, big moments like post debate, but also like, you know, everyone's watching the Emmys cause we're all at home during COVID and like no one has anything else to do. So like, let's take over Emmys content. And you know everybody was really missing sports and not having sports for a while so when when things did start to pick up and come back, being able to align with those sports moments, so you know we were thinking about it creatively as to how how do we really kind of take it up a notch for for digital ads to make up for that.
0: any lessons that you think from the having to run a digital program during a pandemic that you think will persist beyond a pandemic, so we're all back in a world where campaigning looks a little bit more like it used to look, but there's just still some things about the digital program you think that will be different. And you'll always point back and say, yep, we learned that lesson during the pandemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, of course, like most of the stuff that I think we had to deal with were definitely challenges, you know, not being able to be together in person, especially from like a, I would say the hardest hit was probably the creative process because it's a lot harder to do the back and forth of trying to pull together a video ad when you can't sit behind someone's computer and kind of tell them your thoughts and have the edit made in real time. And, you know, there was challenges of course, to not being able to regularly film with president elect Biden. Yay. So I think like all of those things were definitely challenging, but I do think we definitely learned, you know, learning to work remotely, of course, has its ups because I think one of the challenges to really getting talented people to work on campaign work is like the fact that they always have to shuffle around and, you know, move around. And some of the people who have the skill sets for what we're looking for, like digital advertising is kind of niche in politics at this point. There's been a couple cycles where Democrats have really invested, but a lot of people who work in digital advertising live in New York or live in California or wherever they live. and being able to potentially have people work remotely moving forward and you know use new talents that we haven't used before I think could be great. I think we also learned to be really scrappy with creative and being able to use a lot of b-roll and assets that we already had on hand which I think just generally improves, you know, your creative thinking process and gives you ideas for the future of how how to make different types of creative, depending on what you have available, which, you know, actually lends itself a lot to down ballot races, I think, because you're not going to have money to do three different ad shoots. Even for a congressional race, you don't necessarily have money to do multiple ad shoots. So being able to be scrappy and make assets without doing a full shoot is definitely a helpful skill set.
0: That makes a lot of sense. is very interesting, and I think so is the, your comment about working from home. I, I'm not sure I'd ever thought of it quite in those terms, but it's so true. I talk to people all the time, who are looking for roles on campaigns, and they're incredibly talented people. They are people who, you know, I think are well connected, smart, you know, really interesting set of skills and they want to give as much as a whole year or two years of their lives to something like a political campaign and and it is it's it has kind of historically been true that it was like okay well are you ready to kind of pack up and move to some corner of the country that really needs you and even though I'm sure there will still be a lot of that, it's a really good point that that maybe the pandemic has shown that at least for some things and for some kinds of talent, it may make sense to try and to to leverage some of the remote stuff. That's yeah, a great idea about the virtual world from an expert uh, in digital advertising. So no, no surprise, I guess, there that, that you had su- such a, an insight. Before I let you go, I wanted to touch on one more area, which is the role of polling and research. So obviously we've kind of talked about this throughout that identifying your targets, using smart insights into your audience to develop the universe of people that you're actually trying to go after and knowing what kind of messages, you know, are likely to resonate, all of that stuff theoretically I guess happens at a stage before you actually are ready to go out, right, and pull the trigger on some digital ads and I uh, you know it's clear that during this whole Trump era polling has gotten a lot of scrutiny, you know, for a variety of reasons, but not least of which because it just seems like the universe of people who vote for Trump are harder to poll or harder to accurately capture. And, and I don't think the difficulties end there, but that's sort of one of the more obvious difficulties uh, that have arisen in the last uh, four or five years around around polling. So with that kind of context, you know, how do you think about building your digital strategy and your digital plan? How do you think about knowing where to put your limited resources, given what kind of access to, to the research that you have? And, and I, I guess I'll also append to that. What kind of advice do you give to campaigns about the kind of research that you think they ought to have before they go spending a lot of money trying to target people digitally?
1: what's the alternative to not listening to polling and research, just, you know, going by your gut, which isn't probably any better. (laughs) Um, But it's, you know, I think polling is predictive and analytics are predictive. And, you know, a lot of times, I think 2016 and this cycle, unpredictable things happened. So of course, you're not going to see the polling exactly line up. But I think there's things you can do to kind of make sure that you're not totally relying on only only that data. And that's, you know, like I said, with Biden, we we had a ton of paths to victory that we were thinking about pursuing. And, you know, we had a lot of different messaging tracks that were reaching different people. So I think one thing with digital ads is people still tend to really, really try to rely on the one-to-one targeting, which I already mentioned, you know, you're really only reaching half of who, who you need to reach when you do that. And I think the reason that People like to lean on it is of course you know doing only this one one to one audience is going to save you money because you're not expanding your target audience, but you're also losing a lot because you're you're relying entirely on data that is you know predictive again, and you're not reaching everybody you need to reach, and you're not really expanding your base of people in any way to to those who are not in that exact audience. So it's really like giving you this narrow digital path. So I think for a variety of reasons, making sure that when you're thinking about targeting online, you're expanding beyond that, whether it's using lookalike modeling, using zip code targeting, using the targeting that different platforms and sites have, and, you know, interpreting who you should be targeting on those platforms from the data, like, do you think you can persuade more men than women or vice versa, looking at things like age and gender that, you know, some of these sites have good information on. And I think from a messaging standpoint, you know, a lot of, On Biden other races, I worked on this cycle as well as last cycle. We also did message tests, uh, or I guess creative tests. We used Civis and tested our actual ads before they went out to make sure there wasn't backlash. And we actually thought they were persuasive. Again, like, of course, if you're using this particular model, that might not be perfect, but at least you have some idea that you think your creative is going to work. And I think just to like take a step back, I think also like one thing that, to me that I think would be helpful in a change in the polling and messaging equation is like, I do think that a lot of times the the polls still tend to be written by, you know, TV consultants and polling consultants who, you know, those are the, the consultants in this industry who skew a very certain way. They're mostly white men. And I think getting more diverse opinions in the messaging that we test to begin with, you know, among non-white people and women and, you know, people who have different backgrounds, like I would say, like letting digital people weigh in more from the beginning. Because a lot of times in my experience, like the polling is written by TV people. And so it's written in a way that like lends itself very well. It's like a 30 or 60 second TV ad, but doesn't necessarily lend itself to a digital ad. So I think there's also like a reckoning with like, who we include in the research process from the beginning and making sure that there's diversity, not only from like an expertise standpoint, but like, you know, racial and gender standpoint.
0: So interesting, really fascinating. Thank you so much. This has been a really enlightening conversation, I think, especially given how much interaction we all have as sort of recipients of digital advertising uh, in our day-to-day life. And then, of course, just as it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the campaign equation, it's something I know that is top of mind for people as they work in this space or consider working in a space or consider running for office themselves. So thank you so much for your insight. And I'll also say I'm so glad that you decided to find your way into politics. Thank you for taking your considerable talents into this space and for lending them especially, I'll add, to the Biden campaign this Last cycle. So, congratulations and, and thanks so much. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai and follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI.